interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thinking about the, the relationship between my work and my faith in, in Christ and my faith in God as, as, as a kind of sovereign creator of, of us all. My field is the economics of, of poverty, at least that's what I tell people, but really I, I study public economics and labor economics and do work on domestic poverty, which I think gives me a very different uh, perspective and view uh, kind of of this whole topic uh, than Chris kind of has or may have uh, presented. So that perhaps is kind of some good, uh, good range of experience here. And uh, I, sh- I guess I should start by saying I have not worked, I think, as hard as Chris has to reflect on kind of economics and, and, my, and my faith. And as he said, putting uh, economics in terms of, of grace, hope, agency, transformation, and so on is, is, was for me very challenging, and I think uh, uh, in, in a very good way. As a Christian I, I, economist, I feel I am identified in some way with two groups who are often accused of distancing themselves from the poor, at least in the Christian circles that, that I've been raised in and, and part of, uh, I've tend to heard to hear people spiritualize poverty and say talk, kind of transform poverty into kind of spiritual poverty or poor in spirit, you know, when, whenever possible. So whenever you you know read any parable in, in scriptures or so, so on, uh, it's instantly not about money, it's not about economics, it's, a, it's about uh, kind of a, a spiritual matter, which I'm sure there's kind of joint purposes uh, in, in such parables. As an economist, as a member of, uh, as, a, as a scholar and part of a group that uses tools of a, analysis, a vocabulary, kind of a standard acceptable methods that uh, I think are sometimes intentionally or unintentionally designed to put some distance between uh, us as researchers uh, and the poor, perhaps for economists far more than for almost any other discipline, I think, that studies, uh, studies the poor. So that uh, certainly is kind of at least my experience as being part of those two groups that try to distance themselves in some way uh, from the poor. Hopefully your experience as a Christian is not the, not the same. Uh, as, as mine has been. So this is a great opportunity to reflect on this, and I want to just take a chance to talk about uh, three of the topics that, that he talked about. First uh, being hope. And Chris talks about uh, trans, uh, transitory versus permanent uh, or chronic poverty as a way to perhaps highlight the idea of the hopelessness that those who are chronically poor uh, have and perhaps are role in, in addressing uh, that. He, he said that um, less than 25% in the U.S. who are poor in any one year will be poor a year later. And he talked about the median duration of poverty in the United States being four and a half uh, months. Indeed, poverty in the U.S. is very uh, dynamic and 
more, much more so than in less developed countries. But I want to make two points here, just kind of highlighting uh, some of those numbers. The first is that economists thrive on numbers. And uh, we use them to establish our starting points. We use them to, to create puzzles and that, that we would then later like to uh, address. We use them to test our theories and, and for anything else we can use them for. Um, but numbers are dangerous. And I think one thing that, uh, as, a, as a Christian economist, I've uh, learned is to be careful about how I, how I use numbers. And I just want to highlight uh, kind of one, uh, one number here, and that's the number that the duration of the poverty in the United States, the median duration is four and a half months. That, in, in one way, uh, it, it's a solid number. On the other hand, it's taken from a survey that looks at people who enter poverty during the range of the survey and then looks at how long, how long they're poor, which means that it excludes all those who had already been poor for long periods of time before that and who don't have the opportunity during the period of the survey to enter poor. So I think we, we, have, uh, we have an accurate number of those who enter poverty in a particular time period. They stay poor for four and a half months on, uh, or the median. But we have to be careful because there's many who are, for whom chronic poverty is a very uh, large problem. The other part of the problem with this idea of chronic poverty is it's using a data set that has monthly data, which means, and they just define chronic poverty as being poor every single month, those people who kind of cycle uh, out of poverty for a month and then are poor for another extended period of time, cycle out for a month and then are poor, kind of are, in my in my view, fairly easily defined as chronically poor, but may not satisfy those kind of definitions. So my point is not to, to, to quibble with any kind of numbers, but just to point out that as we, as we, as uh, uh, Christian economists address various topics, we have to be careful that we, A, don't kind of manipulate numbers to kind of uh, misrepresent a uh, an issue or, or a point, and B, I think Chris made a very good point, is that we often need to be much more careful or much more willing to look at how other disciplines address the same topic. So looking at income less than a particular threshold for uh, some period of time uh, is one way, but we know it's not the best way to think about uh, defining, defining poverty. Uh, the second question that I'm not going to address uh, about the same issue is, should I use numbers at all? I think that's, that's a very interesting question that we don't even begin to approach, is if I find, if I, uh, you know, read a parable like the one lost sheep and, and, and see how, how concerned Christ was for the one person who was lost, am I really that concerned about uh, the kind of quantity of poverty versus uh, its mere existence. That's, beyond, that's so far beyond my uh, ability to address with tools that, uh, as an economist that I'm going to stop, uh, stop simply there with that, with that, that question. Um, I liked his whole, his focus on agency, which is probably a, a, a word that, again, is new for an economist, but it's probably new for many of us thinking about how we uh, address Poverty. In, in economics, we oftentimes assume that uh, individuals kind of maximize their own well-being subject to some set of, set of constraints, 
and you'll, you'll hear kind of discussion of, of rational economic behavior, and this is where that all fits in. Um, the problem here, and I think I'm making a, a point similar to what uh, Chris identified, is that economists have a terrible time identifying and uh, defining what we mean by constraints. We, we, we simply don't do that uh, very well at all. We tend to measure outcomes fairly well. We, we like to measure outcomes. For example, uh, in some of my work, I've looked at the decision to participate in a food stamp program and how much people uh, work. And uh, those are things that I can quantify fairly well. On the other hand, I'm saying that the individuals do this within the context of some constraints, such as the wages that they earn, how much they're able to get in terms of non-labor sources. Um, knowing full well that there are a number of other constraints that we don't observe and, and that I don't deal with very well. For, for example, um, I don't know if somebody's caring for an invalid parent in their, in their household. Uh, very often. That makes a huge difference or kind of uh, influence on people's decisions. And yet, kind of that falls out of our kind of idea of, of constraint. I don't know how much past discrimination people have faced when they're making their decisions and how that may influence the degree to which they're discouraged by uh, kind of opportunities. And so when we get into the topic of discipleship that uh, Chris talked about next, in which people are uh, we want people to step out of and, and take advantage of the opportunities available. What looks like to me looks to me like opportunities, for example, a low unemployment rate and uh, jobs uh, available uh, in certain areas, may to someone else not look like opportunities at all. They've seen people take that route. They've been shot down. They've uh, you know why why even uh, go there? So. Um, Economists miss a large piece of the picture. And so for me, uh, I guess throwing out another discussion question uh, in this area is how do I as an economist deal with the fact that the problem that I'm trying to address is far more complex than uh, the tools of my discipline uh, allow. And Chris makes the point that we should, we should be willing to work with those outside of the discipline to take it, make advantage or take advantage of the things that... Uh, others in, in related fields are, are finding, and yet as, as a scholar, uh, I'm, let, how should I say that, I'm not rewarded for doing so in, in that the journals in which I would like to publish uh, are, are not going to uh, allow somebody of, of who, who's at this stage in their publishing career to kind of change the paradigm. And so uh, that, that's just some, something as, as a younger scholar that, that, that I struggle with. Okay, on, on the one hand, I, I, I want to recognize the methods, the, the uh, contributions of anthropologists and sociologists and so on. And I believe my faith, in fact, in, in concern for poverty as a, as a problem in general has pushed me to read far more in those fields. But in terms of my professional uh, kind of my scholarly work, uh, I found myself sticking very closely to the tools of the trade. It's not something I'm comfortable 
uh, necessarily sane, but uh, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of where I am, and I'm I'm open to uh, kind of suggestions, critiques, and so on uh, about that. And just fi- just finally, just to to conclude, uh, with respect to to discipleship and asking people or hoping that people take advantage of opportunities. Uh, I think part of the responsibility that I feel as a Christian economist is to understand what, it, what opportunities really means and to think about uh, whether uh, encouraging or, or, say, with welfare reform, forcing somebody to take a job is creating an opportunity for them or if, if what we really mean by that uh, or if what we're really doing is forcing people into jobs that lead to other bad jobs and so on and creating opportunities would really uh, involve far more opportunities for education and adaptation of technology uh, like Chris was highlighting. So those are just a, a couple of, I had, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed reading this and I, I have probably no, notes to, to talk for about 12 to 20 more minutes, and I can't do that. So I'll pass it to Steve. Thanks, Paul. Uh, my name is Steve Wu. I also teach at Hamilton College, uh, and I'm an economist there, and I'm not very far from my graduate school days, so um, just a couple of years. I just thought I would offer a few uh, reactions and also highlight a few of the things that, that Chris pointed at and offer uh, just a few additional thoughts. I was really struck by many of the things um, uh, that Chris mentioned, and in particular... And the idea that for many who are poor, it's a choice, even though we might not think that it could be a choice, in the sense that it is rational. And the idea that incentives are set up such that those that are currently poor, it's difficult to climb out of that, because even though there are things that would, in the long run, make people better off, they simply cannot make those choices. For example, a few of the um, ideas of the fact that they, that people cannot borrow or cannot have insurance or cannot have certain things, that has big implications. Even though there's a technology available, if they cannot undergo the fixed cost up front uh, to undertake that, they're making a decision that in the long run will hurt themselves. And they even realize that, and yet they're just not able to do anything about that. Maybe to bring the analogy to something closer to home, if you would imagine that you were a high school senior and you were admitted to Cornell University, and you were just not able to go because you just did not have the financial resources. There were no such things as financial aid. Your parents weren't able to do that, even though you knew that in the long run that this would make you better off in terms of financially, in terms of your education. That's not something that that may hit home because we have financial aid or we have resources or we're able to borrow. But if you literally were not able to do that, again, those are some of the implications that you can sort of see that we make choices that may hurt us in the long run even though we realize that there's just nothing that we can do about that. So in terms of some implications, again, the fact that people make choices that hurt themselves in the long run, we can sort of think about how are certain, what are certain ways that we would um, be able to alleviate some of those problems by allowing people to be able to borrow, allowing people to have um, access to credit or to insurance. Um, another thing that struck me uh, is the idea that a very little amount can do a lot. Okay, a very little bit can go a long way. This idea that $50 able to um, basically transform somebody's life. The fact that somebody received a dairy cow transforms somebody from 
bleak poverty to now being able to survive and provide for his or her family. And, and the idea that we as not just um, Christians, but as human beings, what could we do? And the idea that, you know, something like $50 can really go a long way. Um, so again, even though the idea that well-timed and well-placed transfers can do a, a lot, um, I think it's a really powerful statement. Um, just a, a couple of comments in terms of the poverty of economics. As an economist, I'll be a little bit more sympathetic in the sense that um, while I realize that an economist, we often, we often uh, view things in a very standard toolkit um, I think the direction of economics is going towards being more interdisciplinary in nature. Um, there's a subfield called behavioral economics, which is incorporating um, elements of psychology. Also, uh, many economists are now using um, and also uh, sort of crossing over into the realm of sociology, uh, whether it's biology, psychology. And I think that is sort of the direction that uh, economics is going towards. So while I would agree that um, as economists, we're sort of, right now, we're not necessarily well-equipped to address many problems. I think that's the direction that, that research is going into. Um, to let, uh, just to take an example, um, in terms of uh, the economics and psychology behind that, there's a growing literature that people, uh, people's uh, well-being or happiness is relative to what they are used to. And I just wanted to kind of give an instance of this. And the idea that there's, a, there's some evidence that people across different countries, whether poor or rich, that their, their levels of happiness that they report are actually fairly similar. So that those in poor countries actually will report well-being that's very similar to those that are in wealthier countries. Again, not to say that that should make us feel better about the poor that because they realize that this is, oh, okay, the happy poor. But again, um, I think one of the points that, that Chris mentions in the article, which I wanted to highlight, is there's this, there's this tension. On the one hand, we want to realize that those that are poor are blessed in many ways. It's not that God has not blessed those people. In terms of materially, they may be lacking. However, again, in some ways, um, they are blessed in many other ways, and we also want to realize that. On the other hand, we don't want to say that, um, that there's not a need to provide for them financially or in terms of material well-being. So I think it's a very difficult issue. On the one hand, we don't want to idolize the, the fact that by giving wealth or giving money to these individuals, that in itself is so important, again, because God provides, um, again, in many ways, and that's sort of, uh, in, that's sort of I think, bigger than just uh, materially. But again, we do also want to realize and be sympathetic uh, and, and realize, again, there is... Um, this call that God has to address the, you know, the physical needs of the poor. So again, I think there's a very difficult, it's a very difficult um, issue, um, and, and there's sort of a tension there. Uh, just finally, I wanted to just c to kind of go from the theoretical to the practical. So given our knowledge of this, the fact that many of us were probably struck by many of the figures, many, uh, many um, uh, of the facts that Chris mentioned, how does the knowledge of poverty and how is the knowledge and understanding of how great a problem this is, how does that affect our, our lives personally? And I think that has a lot of implications in terms of thinking globally, in terms of our prayers, in terms of our stewardship of our money. How do we decide to give? How do our churches decide to give in terms of uh, thinking globally and giving to missionaries abroad or even in terms of charitable contributions? I think these are things that we don't often think about enough when we're thinking about um, 
Paul and I actually serve on uh, on a financial committee for our church. And when we're thinking about should we put money into a new building or should we put it into this program or should we put it into providing for the needs of those around us or those globally? And I think those are things that, again, we as Christians should think about even more, um, especially given the fact that we're struck by this, this problem um, of the poor around us. Um, so I think, I guess that's about all I wanted to say. So I'll hand it over to David. Hi, I'm Dave Richardson. I don't have my name tag yet. I will eventually get it. I've been enjoying talking with many of you, uh, and too much. I haven't done the business I was supposed to do, like pay my money. Um, It's a pleasure to both be with you again. Uh, A number of you are regulars here. And it's a pleasure to uh, hear Chris talk about some of his research I've known Chris for most of his professional career, uh, followed it carefully, prayed for him, uh, resonated with him at many points along the way, and almost never differed with him in terms of his outlook. Uh, So I want to actually pick up from that point. Never differed with him in terms of his outlook on economics, on academic professionalism on Christian faith in the academy. And I'm going to make my comments very broad because I think you may yourselves be most helped if I take off from those comments and make them broad and talk about these things on which I'm very much in the same camp as he is. And I'll try to illustrate what I think is interesting to you from Chris's own paper and his own work um, and then see if he really does agree with me or maybe he's not going to agree with me. He won't be the first. Uh, This this paper that he has written is a lovely uh, tour d'horizon, that French word, horizon tour, of uh, Chris's own work as an economist and as a believer. you, don't, you haven't seen his Vita, but his Vita will reveal that he's worked on almost all the different pieces of this paper that he describes now in a nice, compact way. I think his work is a great example of what Terry Morrison would call integrative uh, scholarship. Uh, Terry, some of you may know why Terry's not here. He's almost always here. He's not here because he's on sabbatical. He would be amazed to hear me actually pick up his own theme of integration, uh, since with Terry, I have had many disagreements on this. But here's how Chris's work illustrates what I think is natural in integrative work and what I am prepared to do to uh, urge on others to do. Chris has taken a theme in economics that has also naturally a great deal of scripture and a great deal of Christian practice over the years. And he has become an expert at studying this theme that has another life in the church. What could be better to integrate your scholarship with your uh, faith than cover material that is, in fact, 
well discussed in both the scholarly realm and in the realm of church practice. Poverty, especially poverty in alien congregations, I'm now trying to relate it to scripture, poverty among the others out there, is what Chris studies. And poverty, we know a lot in scripture, and poverty among the Gentiles is the way scripture describes the poverty out there, not among the family of faith. So Chris has a very natural choice of topic in which to think about things using new terms and new categories, and he shows you some new terms and new categories in this paper very nicely in the beginning when he talks about the economics of poverty. I think in almost every subject matter that you or I are expert in, there are some natural areas in which to specialize as a scholar and as a believer, and they're natural because they're overlapping. Now, I'm not telling you you should or that I should do that because I think scholarly work that has no natural overlap is perfectly wonderful. And I'm not going to say more than that, but I've written about scholarly work with no overlap as being perfectly wonderful for a believer who does it with all his heart as if he were serving the Lord Jesus. Uh, in fact, even though there's no apparent overlap. But when you can do work that has natural overlap, like Chris does, it's great, because in some ways you are serving two masters effectively and well, even though Jesus warns us about that. Um, Chris, secondly, in his modesty, didn't tell you about another set of projects, which also is this overlap between uh, discipleship and scholarship. Uh, this set of projects involves him with others, coordinating others in a study of, now here's the way I put it, he may correct me on this, in a study of whether the notion of identity, the sociologist's notion of identity, makes any difference at all to microeconomics. And, secondly, whether there's any kind of microeconomic choice mechanism in choosing identities and therefore creating a kind of identity economic decision-making feedback between the two. And he has, with funding from the Pew Foundation, put together 12 first-rate economists, really superb people. It's quite an amazing task to study whether identity matters in economics. Now, where's the Christian link there? The overlap there is, to me, pretty obvious. Identity is what, in a sense, is the beginning of faith. When the Lord says, I created you, I looked at you in the womb, and I loved what I had done. I said, this is very good work, you in the womb. And then I've been watching you and loving my creation in you all along. And identity as a believer, identity as a man, as a woman, identity is a lot of what we're about as Christians. We think identity matters as Christians. Chris is studying whether it matters as an economist, and economists don't usually talk this language. We don't think this way. And he has not hidden from any of his 
collaborators on this project, the fact that this is funded by the Pew Christian Scholars Program. The Christian Scholars Program. And look on Chris's website and you'll see Christian Scholars Program and a bunch of names that you won't identify as Christian scholars at all. You won't identify them as Christian scholars because they're not men and women of faith. But they're laboring with him in this very interesting project on identity because it's an interesting project. And oh, by the way, they're laboring with him on something funded by a bunch of Christians with money. Strange. And the chance for, I think, crosstalk between theology, faith, scholarship, economics, sociology. The chance for crosstalk, I think, is just natural, amazing, wonderful. And in yours and my career, I would watch for opportunities like this. I happen to know that this one was dropped into Chris's lap uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, along with the money quite unexpectedly. But since I had a little bit to do with that, I must say that it's very satisfying to see exactly how this has worked out as a piece of integration of faith and scholarship. I'm very pleased with this myself. I wasn't responsible, but I I nudged it in this direction. And I think there are serendipities in most of our careers in which we get a chance to work with other scholars on some of these overlap issues and just very naturally comes a blending then of uh, scholarship and discipleship. Then, again, Chris in his modesty wouldn't think of mentioning this because it's not part of his research agenda, but it is part of his scholarly persona. There's a third area in which his leadership has created a very interesting integration of faith and scholarship. He's been the president of the Association of Christian Economists in a recent period, just gone out, right? They're just transitioning out of the presidency of the association. And we've had one of our periodic conferences back in January. And Chris did not run this conference, but he definitely inspired it as he was the president of the association. This was a conference organized by two other economists on development issues what you see in this paper, studied by academics on the one hand and put into practice by practitioners on the other hand, and the conference brought together the scholars who study development issues, always a poverty-related development issue, with the practitioners who work on the ground level, doing literacy, doing public health, doing all kinds of things. They all came together in Washington for a very fruitful day, and they talked to each other. And the researchers said, you need to know this. And the practitioners said, why? You need to study this, because this is what we're really interested in. And the researchers came back and the practitioners came back. I don't think this would have happened without his influence. And when I see researchers and practitioners doing crosstalk like that, I'm very satisfied, because I do see integration there. Exactly. Those who are caring for the poor abroad in developing countries are listening to the researchers who are studying it. Uh, And the researchers who are studying it are listening to the practitioners for what they need to study more carefully or more longitudinally or more sociologically or whatever word it is. Uh, 
So I mention these things to say that I think Chris's paper isn't all there is to Chris as an integrative scholar. And I hold him out for you all to find out more about him, especially if you're here on the Cornell campus, because there's quite a bit in which I think you and I can learn from him as an integrative scholar. (coughs) Finally, a few broader remarks on what's not in this paper that, again, influence, uh, illustrate, in my mind, the kind of integration that's natural uh, for us as believers. Chris talks mostly about poverty in developing countries. There is poverty in the United States, too. Paul studies it. Many Christians study it uh, as an economist. But uh, Chris does not very much. I wish there were more economists studying American poverty, more American economists studying American poverty. One of the best books I know on current American poverty is written by Ron Sider. It's not written by an economist at all. And Ron's not very sympathetic to economists. And yet, he bent over backwards. The the book is Just Generosity. Uh, Ron bent over backwards to read and come up to speed on what the economists were saying. But why does Ron have to Ron Sider had to pour so much energy to, into preparing himself as if he were an economist to write that book. Why aren't more of us writing about domestic poverty with the lens of scholarship and discipleship at the same time? I don't know. I don't know why more North American economists aren't doing that. More on Chris's issues. There are Issues in development and poverty he doesn't look at, which ought, I think, to enliven believing scholars around the world. And yet I don't know too many who are working on them. Chris didn't say much about public health issues. Public health issues in developing countries as they affect the poor are growing immensely. It's not just what you read about in terms of AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It also has to do with simple sanitation, simple hospital regulatory procedures, and so on. Why aren't more economists working on that? Because it's so natural an overlap between faith and scholarship. Uh, There is an economics of public health. There is economics of development and poverty in third world countries. They aren't brought together too much in my knowledge. Uh, Why not? Chris mentioned the Green Revolution Nobel Peace Prize to uh, one of the pioneers. Uh, Many of you know that genetically modified organisms and crops and crop treatments are an immense important issue in agricultural and rural poverty in uh, third world developing country settings. I don't know too many economists who are working on technology, poverty, developing countries together. It's crucial, and it's perfect kinds of overlap material for Christians. Why aren't, why aren't we working on that? I don't, I don't know exactly. Uh, I wish there were more of us doing so. Finally, um, on um, finance which Steve mentioned and Chris put a lot of weight on. Finance, the ability to borrow against the future, 
or, for that matter, to lend to the future. Uh, either one. Finance is one of the biggest barriers to development in the third world by the poor. The unavailability of mechanisms. I don't know why more of us as Christians aren't studying mechanisms for borrowing against the, borrowing against the future, lending to the future, or, to put it in insurance terms, borrowing against bad news or insuring against bad news, accumulating insurance through premiums with poor populations in mind. There's a whole economics of insurance. I know very little of it that is applied to poor populations. I know none of it almost that's applied to poor populations in third world countries. The closest I can come to it is all the stuff you may know on microenterprise and micro lending has elements of finance and insurance in uh, third world poor countries, but only elements. There's a much more blunt, direct way to study how loosening the constraints on finance and insurance in poor uh, developing countries might be, in fact, a godsend to them. And you can put it that way precisely to them. None of this is in Chris's paper because Chris is talking about his own research. But I, as I think about these things, I wish there were more Christian scholars who were economists working on this kind of work, and I don't know why there aren't. Because it seems to me it's natural. Finally, I won't say anything about the last part of the paper, the poverty of economics, because if you haven't detected already, I love economics. <laughs> On the other hand, I've done more work than most economists I know with political scientists, especially with political scientists. Chris has done more with psychologists than most economists I know. Uh, and I do have some thoughts on whether economics is or is not poor. They do run parallel to Chris's thoughts, uh, indeed. But working with other disciplines raises a whole raft of other integrated questions, integrating across disciplines on which there are many prudential and cautionary things to say, uh, in addition to the warm, fuzzy things to say, which we love to talk about. And that may be good stuff to talk about later in the afternoon if you want to. I've, I gave Elaine a copy of some ruminations of my own on multidisciplinary work. I have a few extra copies. I'll be happy to give you copies if you want. Sorry, to I prattled on for too long. I guess I'm supposed to respond. I'm not accustomed to <laughs> responding to the commentators who are as gracious and complimentary. <laughs> I'm used to meeting a stick <laughs> Um, no, I, I thank each of these gentlemen, Paul and Steve and Dave have all been very gracious and made some very helpful comments, I think, in, in clarifying or expanding on some of these points. So I guess I need to thank Christian for setting up such gracious respondents. <laughs> um, just a couple of quick thoughts, because I'd be much more interested in hearing all of you and you've heard me for too long. Um, Paul raises the point, and, and Dave touches on it, about economists having very little incentive to work across the disciplines. Um, that is without question true. I work very closely with anthropologists and 
sociologists. My first book was with a political scientist. My most recent one is with a sociologist. Um, I'm all too aware <laughs> of how we talk different languages and the returns to interdisciplinary work are discounted very heavily within any discipline, not just within economics. But um, I would also offer the observation that another one of Paul's remarks reveals the benefits to this that we sometimes overlook because the costs are so immediate and obvious. Economists have a hard time measuring constraints. Absolutely true. And as economists, we're trained, as econometricians, we're trained to worry about specification and inference, about what we write down in a model, how we specify a model, and then what inferences we draw from the data we bring to bear against that model. And I find that the greatest returns I get from interdisciplinary work come from informing specification. We don't understand constraints very well, but sociologists and anthropologists can tell us what they are. And if we're clever enough, as econometricians, we can usually find strange dodges around the fact we can't observe constraints. So we can come up with quick tricks that can accommodate some of the problems that sociologists identify for us. But we very rarely think of them. So I find that some of the better work that I think I've been able to do among pastoralists in, uh, in drylands in the Horn of Africa, for instance, is good precisely because I've had anthropologists and range scientists telling me, no, 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 you don't understand routinely telling me that, and then I have to go back to the drawing board um, in the way I build a model and how I estimate data. So it's precisely because we are unable to observe and measure constraints very well that we stand to benefit a lot from interdisciplinary actions, but there's a, there's a big cost to that. Um, Steve had a couple of, of, of nice points, and I fully agree with him. Economics is heading towards interdisciplinarity, particularly as econometricians have become more clever about accommodating the observations of others and as we've started to deal with experimental methods of it. And I'm, I'm glad you raises this whole point about the fact that the, the psychology and economics research that exists on the topic shows happiness is largely invariant to income and wealth. Um, it's a very interesting insight that I don't think we've begun to come to grips with. And there may not be a more important topic in social sciences, frankly. After um, $10,000. After 10,000, but even, even when you look across societies, um, starting middle-income societies below that, you don't find differences. Um, the, the difference between average Bulgarian happiness and average American happiness is zero, statistically, um, which is kind of a mind-boggling idea if you've spent time in Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> and even today. Uh, the, uh, I, I would endorse... Um, Dave's call to study of particular topics, particularly finance and technology and public health as they relate to poverty and poverty in the United States. And I confess that I wrestle with this all the time myself. And I've, I've yet to come up with a good response to my brother's constant injunction. Why do you go that far to study the poor? Why don't you go to the next county? Um, you know, Appalachia, as the U.S. government defines it, begins one county south of here. Um, I travel 35 hours to Madagascar to study poverty rather than driving half an hour south. I'm not quite sure why, and I certainly can't defend that. Um, we need more people who are willing to go one hour south to, to study poverty. Um, finally, uh, I love economists too. <laughs> and I think that the economists who I most admire are the economists who, uh, who, who push the limits 
of our discipline and aren't afraid to say that I learn more now at the margin from a political scientist. And Dave's a good example of this. I mean, some of Dave's, Dave isn't going to tell you this, but some of Dave's very interesting work over the last several years on international trade issues is, is borrowing very heavily from learning from political scientists about what really goes on in trade negotiations and why you really have the following sorts of trade patterns rather than worrying just about simple models. Economists have developed. So again, uh, I didn't emphasize the interdisciplinary benefits. Uh, if, if you get your discipline down good, and that, if, you, if you really have a solid training in one's discipline, and that's a necessary condition, the highest marginal benefits almost always come from talking with people who think about the world a different way. Um, yeah, I'll close with that. Elaine, go ahead. I have a, a brief comment and then a question. Um, my training is in sociology, my graduate student is in sociology here. My, my comment is this I, it's been interesting to me that you've talked quite a bit about identity and about toolkits. Um, and the concept of toolkit is one that we use often in sociology. Um, I'm probably most well developed by a sociologist at Berkeley, Ian Swidler, who uses the term cultural toolkit. Um, and it seems to me that we're experiencing right now what Robert J. Liston has called um, protein cells, that people have overlapping identities that can be very useful at the margins in developing particular kinds of creativity. In that, you know, you have, as uh, Paul nicely put, he's both a Christian and an economist. And he has toolkits at his dispense as a result of both of those identities, which can be used together in incredible kinds of creativity. And I would sort of um, kind of raise the discussion a little bit and say that I think as Christians, we possess sort of um, both a unique kind of privilege and a unique, unique kind of opportunity to the larger academic world because of our specific Christian toolkits in that many of us are better equipped than some other academics to have these kinds of cross-disciplinary discussions, as this Dave has argued. Um, and we also have sometimes a more set, uh, diverse set of experiences that we attend churches sometimes which um, have people from different socioeconomic uh, groups in them and that can give us uh, some sort of ability to learn how to talk with people that are different than, than ourselves. And in my experience, a lot of academics don't have those kinds of resources. Um, some of us are quite marginal in our churches because we're academics, and therefore we need to learn how to develop a language of talking about our work that's transferable to people who are not on the same academic page or don't think it's necessarily spiritual to be an academic. And so we develop those kinds of skills that can be very useful to our wider um, disciplines, and I think it's sort of an economist's kind of sense have a great payoff. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of think about that, that we sometimes have a social constructed kind of marginality, in that I think many of us have experienced a lot of discrimination, sort of intellectually because we're Christians, but sometimes we socially construct our own marginality and sort of don't stand up for ourselves in, in ways that can be very beneficial. And this is a caveat. Um, I've walked through Warren Hall many times and seen uh, Chris's article on the Wall from the Christian Scholars Review. And uh, you know, I don't know whether you put it up there or whether someone else did, but no one took it down. And, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and so then, uh, you know, it's a kind of signpost to me and saying, you know, if there's a Christian who I respect who's doing some good work, um, I can have a little bit more strength in my discipline too, and I think we can offer that to each other. And, and the second kind of, and then we can talk so long, the second thing I have is a question, and um, I was interested, um, Chris, in your stochastic model 
um, we sort of had these lines that said that you know we would choose to begin the black. And uh, I've been thinking some how sociology and economics can speak together to one another, and sort of wondering if you thought much about how people make decisions and the way that certain organizational memberships might structure decisions. And I'm thinking particularly from my field in sociology of religion that the kinds of ways that people understand the good then have very practical implications in the kinds of decisions that they make. Um, and sort of an anecdotal example, I have a, a family member who's been in poverty for most of her life, and I think you know, by um, the standards of poverty in the United States, sort of long-term poverty. And part of the way that she justifies that um, is that, you know, blessed are the poor. It's a particular understanding of Christianity that sort of reinforces poverty. And so sort of the, the way in, at some junctures has made deliberate decisions to remain in poverty when, had, when she had some agency to get out of it. And so it, that's kind of, I mean, an anecdotal example, and I mean that to be no way generalizable, but gives some sort of insight as to how we might start to think about how different definitions of the good, um, different organizational memberships, um, institutions, structure what people think of as rational. Um, I agree. <laughs> no, what you're discussing is, is precisely this Pew-funded project Dave is describing, um, where you have a variety of economists all looking at different dimensions of how individual identity is constructed by social relationships, um, and people have multiple identities, so that I'm not just an economics professor, I'm also a Christian, I'm also a father, I'm also a Baltimore Orioles fan, I'm a brother, I'm a Princeton alumnus, whatever kind of salient feature you want to choose out will create a slightly different relationship. Um, and that these do affect the incentives people face. They affect the preferences we observe them uh, articulating and it affects the constraints that they face. Um, you know, somebody who belongs to a particular kind of congregation will behave differently on a Sunday than people who belong to a different kind of congregation because they perceive there to be very tangible and important constraints on their behaviors on a Sunday. Um, similarly, on a Saturday for different different congregations of different faiths. Um, that these matter to behavior and as, as Dave nicely summarized, and I actually do like his <laughs> summary of the Pew Project, that identity affects microeconomic behavior which feeds back to affect identity. Um, and that that's very important to understanding persistent poverty. And in particular, I think it's important to understanding these coordination issues that I hinted at a couple of times with respect to things like managing risk or improving technologies that people perceive there to be constraints. In the Rice example, people in rural Madagascar are a little bit reluctant to break from their grandfather's practice. There's a very deep relationship to ancestors. The Malagasy practice a custom of Fomabian. They unearth and exhume the bodies of their ancestors and reshroud them regularly in a very important religious ritual that they practice as Christians. Um, breaking from one's grandfather's way of growing rice is partly a rejection of one's ancestors, which has a very important cultural connotation in the world, I guess. There's also an emerging neighborhood theory of yeah. poverty that does something similar domestically, which kind of looks a lot at the information that individuals are receiving and the success of different different options. So if I see, if I live in a neighborhood where the kid who goes to college drops out after six months and ends up working uh, you know, at the local market, um, 
to me, the return to going to college doesn't look so good. And, and so uh, there is an emerging kind of thing that analogous locally or domestically. Just in response to the idea that um, sometimes poverty is spiritualized or glorified, in a way, I think there is some truth, though, to the, the fact that when we have less, we realize more our, our dependence on God. And Not to say that you can't be wealthy and be a faithful servant, but um, I'll be honest, and I would say, I think it's harder. I, it's, I think it is harder. Is it impossible? No, but I think... Uh, not to say that being in poverty, we should see other people in poverty and say, oh, they must be close to God, let's leave them there. That's, that's where the tension comes in, I think. Where on the one hand, we want to provide for others. On the other hand, we also realize from our own perspective, though, is there some idea, let's say we do sell our possessions, as Jesus said, and give to the poor. I think we don't take that literally enough. So I guess there's that, I don't know, I guess that's, I think I can sort of see the, the, the conflict that you, you know, in our own minds. I've heard a couple of, uh, my name is Peter Howell from Syracuse University and finishing up in the economics program. Um, the, uh, I've heard several comments about uh, financing uh, constraints uh, in your paper and, and through the panelists mentioned that. The, um, the uh, thing that occurred to me is that I think it's Grameen Bank. Doesn't that small bank uh, approach to uh, overcoming uh, financial, um, you know, finance market imperfections address the very issues that you that you raised in a you know, really productive and healthy and dramatic way. Um, yeah, it's a, this could be a very long conversation. I'm not going to make it. Um, Robert Solo had this wonderful turn of phrase when asked about the effect of, of computers on technological change in the US economy, they would say, you can find it everywhere except in the numbers. It's the same thing with respect to microfinance. You can find its effect on poverty everywhere but in the numbers. Um, careful studies that control for who self-selects into participating in microbanking exercises. When people control for such things carefully, you can't find any effect of microfinance on well-being of households typically. Very difficult. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but the overwhelming majority of the evidence is microfinance actually isn't doing a whole lot, which begs the question of why. Because it seems obvious that creating little banks and small villages should help people. And it plainly does if you talk with them. Um, but it doesn't always. And understanding why some institutions work and other institutions fail, I think, is the central riddle to releasing the potential of microfinance. And let me offer one quick observation based on some work one of my graduate students has been doing um, among these pastoralists in the dry lands of the Horn of Africa, where there have been some efforts to create micro-banking institutions, local-level credit union-type things called uh, financial services associations. The key insight, the key theoretical insight that drives microfinance is that people can default on loans and say, it wasn't my fault, you know, the rains didn't come, or someone stole it, or whatever. So there's what we economists like to term asymmetric information, that a lender doesn't really know what happened to the borrower that caused the borrower to not repay, and as a consequence, um, people who are high risk don't get loans, and as a consequence, poor people who borrow very little don't get loans. Resolving this information asymmetry is central to making funding flow. 
And so the basic theoretical idea is, well, let people who sit next door to prospective borrowers decide on loans, because now they've got great information, much better information than a bank in a capital city. That's the basic theoretical apparatus behind microfinance, is let's make lending decisions local because local lenders know more about local borrowers. The problem is that it's not just true that friends make gifts or friends make loans, it's also true that loans make friends. <laughs> and what we observe among pastoralists in Kenya is that the rate at which loans made by credit committees default is actually higher than the rate at which loans made by an individual bank manager default. You should have this check, right? You have a bunch of folks sitting together screening applications. They know that you know this guy down the road is a deadbeat and he's not going to repay. The problem is that that guy down the road, the deadbeat, his uncle is a good friend with somebody here and we don't want to offend people so we make the loan. These are social institutions and the social constraints on the behavior of institutions impede their capacity to resolve the finance market failure problem. Um, when we figure out how to do the institutional arrangements, I think we'll figure out how to do microfinance. But we're not there yet because we can't find any impact of microfinance and poverty in the numbers so far. 